Consider this question. Hmm. Consider this question. Consider this question. Consider this question. Consider this question. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Consider This Question podcast. We recorded this conversation on Tuesday, May 12th, 2015. Drew Moss moderated for us with Ryan Vincent and Jim Johnson. Our current series, The Gospel of the Patriarchs, sparked the idea to discuss how to preach Jesus from the Old Testament. We think the conversation will give you a better understanding of our perspective on how to approach the text when preparing to teach it. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Sunnybrook podcast, Consider This Question, um, where on a regular basis we'll be meeting together and discussing issues of theology and church practice, ministry, philosophy, and and other things that we deem to be uh, important. But, but don't always get to address on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday evening or any other teaching time. Um, today, we're talking through um, specifically this issue of reading Jesus into the text. So here would be the question, I guess, is how does one read Jesus into the Old Testament text, specifically narrative? And is that even okay to do that? Um, kind of sparked by our gospel of the patriarch series that we've been doing uh, on the on the very first Sunday, Jim made this statement that we are going to be through this series reading Jesus into the stories, reading Jesus into the text, which um, if, if you've ever sat in any of uh, Jim or Ryan's or anyone else's classes on how to study the Bible may have kind of struck you as odd because that's, that's a statement we speak against a lot, what we call eisegesis, readings, reading our own meaning into the text as opposed to exegesis trying to pull it out. And yet Jim kind of made this statement, we want to read Jesus into the text during this series. Um, so so I, I don't know about for you guys, for me, that has actually sparked a number of conversations with people talking about what do, what do we mean by that? What does that look like? How do we go about that stuff? And, and, and so I thought, man, that would be helpful to be able to have that conversation here a little bit. Um, maybe before we even do, do, do you want to, I don't, I don't know if Jim, you want to give maybe even a defense for why we would um, read that. Jesus into the text. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if you want to wait for that or. Well, I mean, and the way I uh, the way I introduced it in the sermon series when we started in week one had everything to do with the fact that because we are Christian, um, so we're not we're not just we're not just Gaudians, we're not just Bibleians, however you want to term it. We're not just uh, trying to uh, look at the Bible in defense of the Bible itself or God in defense of God in and of Himself. Other than the fact that we believe he has revealed himself uh, finally in these last days, right? As Hebrews 1 says, through Jesus. Uh, so that concept that in the past God spoke like this, but now he speaks through Jesus. The, the New Testament, uh, from the beginning of the gospel accounts to the end of uh, the writers of the, um, the letters to the churches, challenge us to see Jesus as the lens or the filter with which we look at all of the Bible. Um, and so that's the reason why. Uh, so I, I know that that can really sound like there's a bias, and I think it's good for us to admit, yeah, there really is a bias. 
the question as to as to whether or not that bias is true. And that's where I would even go back uh, very simply to the apologetic or the defense um, of the fact that because Jesus was in fact God, the fact that Jesus was in fact um, the Messiah, raised from the dead, brought back to life, ascended to the to the to the throne of God, um, all of those things then make this idea of reading him back through it right. Yeah, yeah, and and we even see. Um, Jesus saying in a few different places in the gospel, like it, it was about me, by the way, this is, that was supposed to Luke 24 is kind of one of the famous ones, the road to Emmaus, where he tells, you know, the disciples he, um, on there, he kind of walks back through and, and explains to them, Luke says how, how all the, the law and the prophets or Moses and the prophets were speaking about him and explaining him. So, one text that really hit me hard that I've been using a lot actually is uh, in in defense of this is what Jesus says in John five to the people who are having a real hard time believing who he is, um, and Jesus makes the statement. Uh, here's my paraphrase: uh, You know, you look to the Old Testament or you look to Moses particularly because you think in him you have life, but the real truth is is that if Moses were here, he would believe in me too, and that really takes Jesus onto a whole new level. He says. Uh, when you're looking at the Old Testament, it points to me. It it describes who I am, and and that either sounds pretentious, in which case, if he's not who he says he is, then it is pretentious. If he is who he says he is, then it just makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does the same thing in John eight with Abraham, John nine again with Moses, and then all the way back in Matthew five. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. It's, you know, I, I think that to talk about the bias that we come to the text with. We have a strong bias towards the sovereignty of God. So it isn't such that Jesus just happened to fit um, as a lens through which we read the Old Testament, but because we have such a high view of God's sovereignty that now that we know the last chapter of the book, we can go back and read the first chapters appropriately and with a, a fuller understanding of what God was doing because he is consistent, he is sovereign, and he is going to work out his plan in a perfect, consistent way. Yeah, yeah. So one of the, uh, one of the issues, and specifically I had a, this discussion with one of our students who was kind of asking, so how do you know you're reading Jesus into the text properly? Like, is there, is there a, a bad way and a, and a right way to do that? And, and how do you know? And what does that look like? And, and, and I found in that discussion what was really helpful, even for me, in, in being able to kind of clarify my position was to, was to explain what it's not and what it doesn't look like. I, I heard a, a quote recently from Oz Guinness that said, uh, comparison is the mother of clarity. And I found that to be really true, that to, to, to help me kind of understand one thing, to, to line it up against other things that it isn't, or to be able to compare and contrast it with some other views. And so basically what I want to do real okay, where quick is... is Where's that from? I mean, I really... I'm, I'm just actually... Right now my mind is still kind of going, okay, so... Comparison is the mother, mother of comparison clarity. Comparison is the mother of clarity. Where is that in? I have no... I actually heard a guy like just in a quote speech him. quote it. Yeah, quote okay. it and... So Googled it to make sure it's legit. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. you know, Google, everything. Well, Oz Guinness has got some it. really fun stuff. Yeah. But that, that really is kind of an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Because right? that's what we're constantly doing. Is yeah. We're constantly trying to find these comparative reasons to explain. It's a little bit like a parable, right? Yeah. A parable clarifies by comparing, mm -hmm. by saying this is what it's like, and therefore we have a greater understanding. So, yeah. 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 But my mind's still kind of reeling right now from that, so... <laughs> Um, so let me, here's what I want to do. I want to lay out four 
different methods or categories of reading Old Testament narrative, kind of four ways that, A, it's, it's, it's studied and read by Christians a lot of times, and, and also that it's often taught or preached. And, and so I want to kind of walk through those a little bit, and, and I won't offer too much comment on it because I want us to be able to talk through it later, but let me just kind of explain where those are on a spectrum and, and recognize this, that these, all four of these categories sit on a spectrum, and there are probably a number of different categories that could go between them or subcategories, but I think that this really does sum up well kind of the four ways to, to read Old Testament history or, or narratives. And, and the first would be what, what we call the, the moral example method. And that is to read um, the stories in the Old Testament as though they are providing um, principles for how to live or an example for how we ought to behave and live our life as Christians. And so if, if I were going to, I want to run all of these through kind of the same story. So to take the David and Goliath uh, narrative um, would be to kind of read that as an example of how in, in facing our own giants that each of us have to come up against, difficulties or hardships, um, this is how you face your giants. You face it with bravery and, and with courage and with faith. And, and so that, that you kind of walk through that text and glean, this is how David did it. So this is how we want to do it. And, and honestly, it can go to varying degrees of silliness if you want to get, um, you know, preachers who could say, you know, David had his five stones for defeating Goliath and you need your five stones, which are whatever, faith and courage and tithing, 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 and, tithing, yeah. tithing, and tithing. <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, so it can, it can go to that point. Yep. Um, but this is truthfully, I, I would say, unfortunately, probably the most common way for Christians to read the Old Testament stories today. It is definitely the way that it's taught in Sunday schools to kids. And, and often, I'd say, probably one of the more common ways that it's preached when we preach through is to, to gain um, moral principles from the characters themselves that we ought to follow. Which the emphasis then becomes, here's how, here's how. I'm not going to tell you why. Yeah. Here's how, here's yeah. how. And we really aren't going to be dealing with the why. Yes. So there can be a detached, uh, um, I would say maybe even both a detached heart as well as a detached head, not understanding What's going on? The other thing I found is with with that whole way of looking at the text, Drew, is that you really miss out on the amazing part where David steps up and says, "How dare this uncircumcised Philistine oppose the armies of the living God?" Yeah. And so when you look at a kind of a moralistic way of approaching a text, it's really easy to get trapped in the methodology mm-hmm. and not understanding the purpose behind it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the reason why this always catches it. well. I loved it, and I preached this way for a number of years, and then it began to be empty. Yeah, yeah. So, um, second kind of way to approach this is a shift from kind of the the human or the person to God to Christ, and and that's what we would call the typological method. Um, this one I, I don't hear as as often or as outright, though I did just hear, just I, I saw a video just uh, this past week with a really, really famous preacher that I really, really like and, and appreciate and admire, um, kind of um, being a proponent of this. He actually used the David and Goliath thing and said, just what we talked about, we often put ourselves in the David story and Goliath is our, our difficulty, our adversary. And he said, no, that's not true. The truth is David is... Jesus and Goliath is sin and death, and, and Jesus is the one who conquers sin and death. And, and so what he does is he shifts, I think, rightly the focus to Jesus, but wrongly still somewhat kind of misses the point of the text. 
Um, what he's, the reason we call it typological is he's making David a type of Christ and, and kind of driving what he says is, yes, it did actually happen. That's a, that's a historical event, but God allowed that event to become for us an illustration of, God, of Jesus defeating sin and death on our behalf. And, and so this is kind of that, that second method. The, the third would be a little bit of a move up, which is some people call it the, like the analogical method, or I, 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 I always refer to it as the Keller method because Tim Keller is very famous for doing this. Or if you read uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, and it actually says in there that it is um, written largely based on the teachings of Tim Keller. You yeah. see this happen over and over again. Great and book. Yeah, it really is. We read it with our with our kids. I was actually just reading it uh, last night. I read that with our, our kids all the time and, and love it. Um, the, the shift here is not so much to say um, that this person is a type of Christ, but, but to find um, Jesus as a fuller fulfillment of that kind of person. And, and so it, it would often end with, uh, to, to take the David and Goliath again, that um, notice how God uses um, this uh, unexpected means of saving his people. This this boy that you wouldn't expect to, to come in and save his people. And and years later, God would one day again use an unexpected means to save and redeem his people, or, or that you have this unlikely king hero who steps up on behalf of God's people. And, and years later, once again, God would bring an unlikely king, an unexpected redeemer, and then kind of point that on to Jesus. Um, so more of a um, the last, the typology piece, this is like a deeper way uh-huh. of looking at typology. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so it's not just, is he a type in a very superficial way or a very surface level way, but at, even at this more profound way, which Keller is always more profound than all of us anyway. Yes. So I, yes. I can see why it's the Keller method. Yeah. And it, the type, the, the typological method will always have an anti-type for the most part. One anti-type. Explain that. It will have a... A, an initial um, image or picture of something that God is doing, and then it will always have something that um, later on, typically found in Jesus or in the church or in the apostles. The, the anti-type is the the greater escalated version of that tie of of the original type of, of what God is choosing to do um, in the world. And the difference between I think a type anti-type scenario or way of reading the text, and then an analogical way of reading the text is there is a type and an anti-type. But the analogical method says, look at how God tends to work here. Let's observe some of the characteristics of the Creator, and then we can see Him work the same way. We can see His character manifested in other places as well. So it's like, what can we learn about God Himself that we can then better understand what He's doing later on in the text, versus this directly correlates to another event as a type and then an escalated anti-type. Yeah, an anti-type, just to make, just to make it clear, it, it can sound negative because we, we yeah. think of Christ and anti-Christ. Yeah, like it's the opposite yeah. of an so after-type. So, yeah, it's more of an after-type. So don't read negative into anti. It's not yeah. against. It's the, the it's more like the, anti-meridian. It's, it's after. Yeah. 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 So, so the difference between two and three is two says the purpose of the David and Goliath story is to show us Jesus defeating sin and death or whatever. 
Um, the ultimate purpose. Yeah, yeah. That that's the ultimate. The number the, the third way. This analogical method says now that's not the exact purpose or point of the text. That's not exactly what the author is driving at. But as we step back, we can see how Jesus does those kinds of things in a greater way than even David did. How God uses those those kinds of means and 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 works this way throughout history and does it again in a greater way in Jesus. So it's not the main point. But it is a beautiful kind of connection that we can draw, and I think, and I think that's an okay and, and great connection to draw. Um, the last is what we would call the the redemptive historical method, and 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 this is obviously going to be. Uh, you've probably noticed we've worked on a scale of kind of worse to better, and and this is I, I believe the healthiest way of doing it, and that is not to try and draw a direct connection right away, but to see how this story fits into the great scheme of God's redemption plan. And, and so um, this one looks to the point of the story. The point of this story is that God is using David to save his people, to be faithful to his word, to redeem him. And, and so the way that you draw that connection to Jesus is to say um, that God um, is saving and, and preserving the people by whom he would one day bring the Messiah. And not only that, but he preserves and, and saves and, and lifts up David through whom the lineage of the Messiah will come. And so when we step back in history and we can look at it and we can say, okay, so the point is that God is at work. And, and, and David even says in that story, right, you come to me with what, swords and spears and all this stuff. I come to you in the name of Yahweh, our God, and, and basically that God is the one who's doing the fighting here. And, and the reason he's doing that, we don't see, you wouldn't see it when you, if you were an Israelite reading it for the first time, but we get the, the benefit of being able to step back and see the grand scheme and say, oh, the reason God is at work to keep Israel okay in that moment, to, to make sure that Israel is sustained. The reason he's at work to save David and to use him is because he's got a greater plan that's going to come through David and come through Israel and, and that's Jesus in there. And so this becomes, I believe, the most accurate way of reading the text and then also kind of showing how Jesus fits into those things. I don't know um, if you guys have thoughts, comments on all four on that or, or where you want to go from there. But. Well, on, on that well, last one, let's, let's think a little bit about the, the value and the importance of the meta narrative um, because it, does, it reminds us of the bigger picture. And so uh, there's something probably dangerous, and maybe I'm even guilty of this, is thinking of the meta narrative clearly at the personal level. You were created, you fell, you were redeemed, you are being restored. But what the meta narrative is designed is like this is God's cosmic plan to glorify himself. Therefore, there really was a fall, um, there really was a Jesus who came and redeemed this, um, and we are being restored. So it's it's more of the bigger picture element that you're trying to pull back. And that's what you're saying is take a look at your story in the larger story of God, the meta meta narrative, if we could call it that, because so often we reduce this to an individualistic perspective. And what you're saying is, is that David actually fit into in a, in a small piece, this huge Lego yeah. piece, this, this big designed uh, system is that God is sovereignly bringing this about, and then what you're going to say is to bring Jesus Christ literally into the picture. Yeah, and so that's why David defeats Goliath is because God can be trusted, and ultimately the fact that Jesus is going to come, a descendant of David, is why God came and protected David. Yes, in other words, God isn't using David for David's sake or saving Israel for Israel's sake, 
but because he was going to use Israel to bless the world. And so there's that there's a larger thing at stake there that he wants to wants to bring. That's that's why he's saving them, because he's going to do something greater through Israel one day. And, and that's why he can be trusted. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, the fun part of, of looking at Scripture through this particular lens is that we can, you can say everything in the Bible finds its root, its genesis, if you want to let me use a pun, in the words, in um, the beginning, God. You should let him use let the pun. Let me use the pun. I like in, that. In the beginning, God, everything comes from that, and everything, every word after that initial sentence um, is barreling towards the life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, glorification, and ultimate final enthronement of Jesus Christ. Everything is moving towards that. And so we come to a story like David, it's almost like we have to step back and look at the two poles and say, in the beginning, God, and then there's some things happened. And then in the end, we know the last chapter of the Bible, in the end, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, how does this story find its place between these two poles. And if it doesn't, then I would say you're reading it incorrectly. If it doesn't, if it doesn't synthesize itself in in that big, big story. Because again, it would go back to God and his his sovereignty to work out his plan in a yep. consistent way. Yes. Um let me ask you guys this question. Why do you think um that we as as Christians and as preachers and teachers um so naturally gravitate towards the moral example uh, method when we when we study or, or teach scriptures, why is it that we so often kind of almost default to that in our Sunday school lessons and in those things? And and maybe kind of further down, I also want to hear what what you think the damage of that is to us or is to the church. I think it's the easiest way. I think that we can uh, sometimes get lulled into um, finding these 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 men and women in the Old Testament, particularly. Finding these men and women and seeing in them great examples. After all, we record what they did if it wasn't to be held up as some example of what to do or what not to do. And so I think that it's it's very natural for us, you might maybe to go back to Oz Guinness's quote, it's very natural for us to want to compare ourselves and say, well, you know, I wonder, you know, if I were in the garden, would I have eaten of the tree? If I were, you know, if I were faced with a nine-foot-tall man, would I have bucked up and thrown a stone and, and, and realized that maybe God is is calling us to 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 follow these people that he's lifted up as models? It just seems like a really easy way to read the text, and I, I would argue probably a very reckless way of reading the text. I would also say it, it really hits upon a truth, which is that we need to be courageous and we need to be um, obedient to God uh, in terms of the building of the ark, and so whether we're beginning with our kids or whatever, there is a there's a sense in which it's true. Yeah. Um, and and so uh, I'm all for dogging on these things and yeah, really yeah. kind of exposing them. But um, the part is I, I'll never forget. I had a professor who used to say all the time, um, "Right idea, wrong text. Right yeah. idea, yeah. wrong text." And so you know we we hit a lot of. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of like my golf game, which I quit years ago. But my golf game, I can hit the ball well, very rarely, but I can hit the ball well with the wrong club, and that's just not a, the right way to play golf. Yeah. And so I I know you could do that. There was a time I was golfing one. <laughs> this is awesome. And so everything for me was like a one wood, you know. And so I'm always hitting <laughs> this one wood, and I can just never. And then all of a sudden, one. So I'm literally like probably 90 yards from the pin. And I connect, and it just goes <laughs> sailing and nails this guy that's at the number two tee box. And I'm just thinking, oh, man, it finally connected. Um, and that's the problem is yep. that you're, I'm sure you can hit the ball really, really far. 
Uh, and so that's the reason why I didn't learn to let the loft of each club do its work. And so in the end, I had to compensate for it. And I think that's I think the problem that that's the problem yeah. is that we never get out of the mode of teaching my five year old to be brave or my five year old to mm. be obedient or my five year old to respond in these Bible stories. And so in the end, every answer for every shot is this moral response. Yeah. What we're doing, I, I think what we'd like to do is we like to teach ethical truths by going to texts where ethical truths are applied. And in rather, there are places where ethics are prescribed, they're, they're more clearly laid out as imperatives, commands to give into people. And then we, we come to these, these sections where we see those ethical truths about how God wants his people to live applied, and we just say, well, that's what that means. Actually, no, that's it's like going to you know Paul's letters and saying these are the gospels. Actually, that's the gospel applied to the church at Colossae. The gospel, like Paul, is basing that on truths found elsewhere. So you can find glimmers of the gospel, and I think you can find the gospel actually written very well in the uh, in the epistles. But we have to remember that this is this is Paul applying a truth found elsewhere into a specific context. And so we have David applying God's um, command to trust him and to stand up for him and to not bow down to other gods in this particular context. But that truth is found elsewhere, right? It can also be really confusing to kids, too, because uh, one of my favorite stories is uh, Canon Smith, actually. Uh, we're, we're going through and we're sharing these amazing Bible narratives, and he's reading the story of David and Goliath. And it can sound awesome for a little boy to go and fight the giant and then at the end of the narrative cut off his head. And then he looked at me and he said, my mom wouldn't like it if I did that. So he's he's already kind of engaging this and he's realizing, yeah, my mom doesn't like me to cut off giant's heads. And so there becomes this also this natural limit to the to the text. And and the reason why that's valuable is, is that um, are we already assuming here? Let's, let, I'll take this a little bit deeper here. Are we already assuming in a morality that is maybe more culturally based, sometimes right and even sometimes wrong, and then going to the text to support the morality that we already believe in. And so um, as Christians, lying is wrong. How about deceiving? What do we do with the midwives in the beginning of the Exodus narrative who deceive and God blesses this deception? So do we look at that and we say, well, wait a second, Abraham lied in the Genesis narrative, and it seems like that was a not trusting God. And yet here you have these midwives deceiving, and then God honors that. And so you're going to deal with different texts. If you only have a moral way, all you're going to be able to do is support what you've already presumed. Um, So it's like there's this cultural push, this cultural wave, and now we just go to the Bible to prove what we already know. This David we love so much, how do we deal with Jonathan lying to his father about where David is? Should you lie to your parents? Yes. Here's an example. Yeah. Um, Let me, I I will kind of (laughs) clarify. That's why we don't let the children listen to our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think, and I think you guys would agree with me, I I would say it's not necessarily wrong to glean some principles from these texts as we go through it. It it is true that we ought to, uh, David's faith in God as he moves to this is a great thing to glean and to get from that. We just... Um, we can't make it the point. For, for example, even a few weeks ago, as you were talking about Abraham traveling to the promised land, and he gets there and there's a famine, and you kind of break down there that there are times when we follow the leading of God and we get there and it's not what we expected it to be. And it's hard. And, it's, and, and what do we do in those moments when we, when we follow him? We're obedient 
and and it still doesn't work out. We trust, we have faith, and and that's I really think that that was okay to do. That that's that that's justifiable from the text. Yeah, Jim's wiping the sweat off his face. He was nervous there for a little bit. Um, well, because Drew doesn't like a lot of things. Um, he's very lovingly sweet critical of of almost everything we do so that's why i like him we end every meeting by asking drew what did you hate about everything we just (laughs) said or not like what did you not pull out my list yeah he from the outside drew looks very sweet but on the inside he's kind of one of those sour apples (laughs) yep yep but let me let me tell you this so i mean going back to that example um here's why be careful reading it as and this is where we get into trouble uh, whenever God calls you, he will always have a famine. Yeah. No, that's not what the text is implying either. And so that's where we can get into trouble. It's Let's look at this one example. What See, what hit me about that was that idea about God leading and then you being faithful and then finding a famine runs against our basic idea that if God is going to provide a way, um, or if he's going to call you, he's going to provide a way. Um, that if God closes um, a door, he opens a window. Yeah, yeah I hate that. That's just not true. Sometimes God closes my fate. My, my, my line is God closes the door and then squishes you through this, the keyhole. That's kind of what, what God's plan really is. And so it's, it's without understanding the why. And here's the other thing I find fascinating is that when I look at the text, it doesn't seem like Abraham struggles with the famine. It's not like he is somehow going, something's wrong. I misheard something, or it seems like the famine was very much a part in his mindset. It seems to be, according to the narrative, that the famine was clearly within the parameters of how life and God's interaction in our lives are going to be. So that, that I think that's a good, good way to look at it as we're trying to, what you're describing here, Drew, is how do we apply the Bible? How do we apply these Old Testament texts to our lives? And some of it comes back and says, what is your bandwidth of God's providential love and care and concern and plan for your life? What does it look like? And for many of us, we have a very small bandwidth. And so if we're on the right track, it works out. If this is what God has called us to do, it will bring happiness. And so I like to remind my mother-in-law, whose answer to everything is, oh, you'll have peace about it. And I'm just thinking, well, I just have a lot of Bible stories. Now, there are some. You know, I don't want to say what she's saying is completely wrong. But to try to say that peace is always the byproduct is just not true. I think you're rubbing up against an idea that we should probably flesh out at least a little bit, and I'll let either one of you guys kind of explain this. But you're talking, we're dealing with application here, and I think some of the rub comes with where maybe the the perception is that our application is being um, taken as what the text actually means. And so perhaps we should deal with what is the difference between the meaning of the text and the application of the text. And, you know, maybe, maybe Drew could explain it to us. Yeah. So uh, the idea being, and, and, and we say this sometimes when, when we're, uh, if, if you're in a class where we're talking through hermeneutics or interpretation, that there is um, one meaning to the text, but there can be multiple applications that the, that the uh, that there's just this this one idea, but there can be various levels of significance to it, and that is um, so so yes, the the truth has has to be one truth and has to say the same. And and what Samuel was describing as he's talking about David and Goliath, he had a specific idea that he's trying to convey about God and His faithfulness and His sovereignty and His ability to put His plans into action. That we can't get we can't change it and say no. I think Samuel meant this. And, and kind of switch it around or whatever we want. However, 
um, there are multiple ways of applying that depending on our context. And so um, 21st century America is going to, to look different on how we live out our trust and our faith in God's faithfulness. Um, it's going to look different than it is for an Israelite who is experiencing oppression by a, a, a foreign enemy, be that the Philistines or Assyria or whoever, and they have to lean into God's faithfulness. It might look a little different in that spot. And so, yeah, we can glean some principles for how we live out of these, and we ought to. Um, just just being sure that we always go back to to the the actual point, the purpose of what the text is trying to convey, and starting from there before we move into, and this is how it wants us to live. Does that, does that sound like a fair no, description no, of that? I think it's excellent. It's It calls us to go back and let's look at the original copy and not just the copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, because that's where we get into trouble. When we look at um, different cultures' uh, manifestations or different cultures' dis- decision on how to apply a text, when that becomes the only way to know how to apply the text is the way that they did then we have lost any kind of uh, continued relevance where the Bible then speaks directly to us. Um, And we've also lost any kind of continual dependence on the Holy Spirit to help us know how do I live out the first Samuel narrative, right? And so those become critical pieces that we need to keep coming back to. How do we help our children? How do we help our churches? How do we help our friends um, live out what this actually looks like? And I I think, you know, one other thing, going back to this, Interestingly enough, when we can help them see, right, uh, the redemptive historical method as you're describing it, then all of a sudden the Bible creates a whole new relevance in our life groups, a whole new relevance in our families. So I, I can just tell, I can just see it. And, I'm, and I was in a Bible study earlier today, and we were talking about as men, um, how do we remind people of what God has done? And so in the middle of this conversation, we were pretty honest about the fact that for some reason that can seem hokey. Right, so even in a marriage or whatever, to look at you and have a conversation, a frustrate, a fight with your wife, okay, and in the middle of it, well, let's remember what God did for us. Let's remember God's redemptive historical. That just sounds strange when you're in the middle of a fight, and I think one of the reasons why it sounds hokey is then we do the eye rolling thing. It's like, oh, right, it's the God card again. But what we're talking about here is by looking at God's plan and ultimately at what Jesus means to that and how that works. Um, it really allows the Bible to speak to us in a always fresh and in a new way. So instead of it being, um, it's a little bit, I heard something on Focus on the Family years ago that was really helpful for me. It basically said, um, if your child is five and it prays like a five-year-old, then that's normal. But if your child is 14 and they're praying like a five-year-old, something's broken, just like math. So prayer is like math. Biblical application is like prayer, which is like math. And if the only way you know how to apply the text is in that one-dimensional moralistic way without seeing, hey, I mean, I think each one of these is helpful to kind of understand where you're at. Like you're not dogging on the first three and going the fourth one is the only one you should have. It's it's, it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, Because, by the way, there are types and anti-types. Yep. So Jesus and the apostles use almost all of these, and they play some games with some allegorical interpretations that we don't even feel the right to do. So to to write everything off is to say, and we'd have to tear out a couple pages from the New Testament because the, the leaders of the first church did this. But we are saying that there are some ways that are safer and can and can exercise a bit more wisdom, and that the moral the moral example method is probably the one where you're going to be playing with fire ninety five percent of the time. You try to go that route. Yeah, here's what I would say as a college minister who's who's who who gets to see a lot of students come out of 
a, a life of being in Sunday schools and VBSs and church camps and, and sees um, for some of them, they feel like either the Bible is becoming relevant to them for the first time as they're in college or for some of them to, to, that they look back and they just think that the Bible is now completely irrelevant and it's always been irrelevant to their lives. I think one of the key issues, and it does, it sounds like we're just dogging um, all these, uh, your Sunday school teacher who taught you to be brave from the David and Goliath story. And, and we don't mean to do that. But when we, when we make the Bible specifically about all these stories describing us and we place us in the story and this is how we ought to behave, we really kind of whittle it down. And the truth is, and this is what I think a, college, a lot of college students come to understand, is they can get to college and they realize that they don't actually need the Bible to tell them to be brave. Um, that, that, yes, it's, it's nice, but you could also get that from the Quran, or you could also get that from Aesop's fables, or you could also get that from, and, they, and they're discovering all kinds of people who don't believe in the Bible, but they know to be brave, or they know to do the right thing even when it's hard, as Noah illustrates for us, or as Joseph illustrates for us. And, and you can learn all these principles that were taught to them in Sunday school. They're, they're discovering that people can follow those without believing in the Bible, and that's why the Bible has to be bigger than just um, how does it teach me to live. It has to, be, it has to be about a God who is at work to redeem and restore and, and, and for his own glory and for his own namesake, and that I can't get from Aesop's fables. And that's why, that's, why, that's why we are passionate about trying to drive the text and our, and our focus back to Jesus, because that is, that is what makes it unique, and that is what we ultimately need. Yeah, Sidney Gredanus, in, in, he, he wrote a great book on how to read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament uh, properly. And, and one of the things that really jumped off the page to me as I was reading through it this last week was he said, so we, we have gotten into trouble because we are reading a theocentric Christocentric book through anthropocentric uh, lenses. He said, we're looking at a God-centered, Jesus-centered book through man-colored glasses. And he says, you're, you're, you're trying to approach it um, um, by putting the emphasis on the wrong agent is the word that he used. He said, this, this book is about God and his interaction with man, not about man and, you know, anything else you might want to put on there. But well, and that's the, I mean, that's, we've seen this even recently in the church um, with the uh, let's be more like Jesus, the WWJD phenomenon. Let's, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Um, at its very core, if it doesn't have Jesus changing my heart and my life and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to glorify God is nothing more than moral copying. Um, and so what do I need to do? Well, I need to not lust like Jesus would never lust. And I need to not steal like Jesus would never steal. And, and then that's why we have people who think they're fine and they don't even need God because they've kind of figured out the moral problem on their own. And then they kind of add grace when needed. But for the most part, I've got it pretty much figured out. Um, and, and that's why going back to the theocentric um, and the, uh, the, the Christocentric idea, the one thing you can't get from our moral perfection or struggle even is one thing you can't get is right with God. Like you can't get Jesus by being moral and you can't get God by being moral. And that's the fundamental story of the Bible. And that becomes the fundamental problem. So I, I going, going back, I just, I, I see so many people with the eye roll with this, you know, yeah, whatever. I know I'm supposed to try that, but I can't really do it. I'm not perfect. Um, it's almost like they, we have, we have made the Bible white noise to this generation um, to myself included. I mean, a lot of the Bible is, okay, I need another moralistic story. So it becomes white noise. 
Um, and I like how you described it, Drew. This is why when our young people go to college, Gandhi can be more inspirational than anybody else. And part of it is because they just seem so real. Um, you know, they're, they're just, they're, those are real life examples. Um, and I don't think that's what, you, you just can't get Jesus with uh, That's to me. That, that sums up well where we're going. I don't know if you guys have anything you want to add to that. Well, it turns out there wasn't anything added, so that's the podcast. We genuinely hope you found it inspiring, informative, and useful. So, on behalf of the Consider This Question podcast team, this is Steve Broadway. Until next time. <laughs>